Good morning and welcome. I'm going to kick us off with a question. Are symbols or the use of symbolism important to us today? Personally, I'm leaning on the side of yes, mainly because I'm displaying one right now. I'm going to pull a few more and see what you think. What comes to mind when you see these images? We have a ring, we have a heart, we have a Wi-Fi symbol, and we have the Statue of Liberty. Usually when you see a ring, it's at a marriage ceremony. Um, it's usually given by the bride to the groom and the, and the bride, um, broom to the bride. And it's meant to symbolize or represent eternal commitment. When you see a heart, it represents love being expressed. And when you see a Wi-Fi signal, it usually means you're going to be able to connect to a device and devices to other people around the world. The Statue of Liberty, now, that represents freedom. The actual torch itself symbolizes enlightenment. The combination, the idea when you see it, it's meant to think, you're meant to think the path to liberty. Now, when I've used the term symbol here, it actually means anything that's pointing to something else. Usually we, we term symbols as something abstract, something like ideas or beliefs. And for symbolism, it's the use of these symbols to represent an idea or a quality. So overall, I'd say, yes, symbols and symbolism are important to us today, mainly because they are everywhere. Now, symbolism is all about sending a message. If I ask God right now about you, what message do you think he'd send? And what message are you sending to him? Now, we're going to look at a part of the Bible where symbolism meets reality. And that is in John 3, verse 22 to 26. We're going to have a look at that together. Um, just so you're not confused, it is John the disciple writing about John the Baptist. Get our Johns right. Let me read it. So this is John testifies about, again, about Jesus. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water. And people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washings. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourself can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy. When, the, when he hears the bridegroom's voice, the joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one who God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything in his hands. 
Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Now, what's going on? Let's start at the beginning. So we've got Jesus with his disciples. They're spending time together, as you would do. And he's overseeing them, and they're baptizing people. Now, straight away, we can see that there's a level of importance attributed to baptism. The type of baptism that we're talking about here is that is the baptism of repentance. It actually symbolizes the cleansing from sin. The act itself describes the outward sign of cleansing, reflecting an inward repentance of sin. Now, in the passage, we hear that people were coming to John. So that means they were responding to something. John the Baptist was sending a clear message to all who are willing to hear it. And that is that the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, even city dwellers were coming out to the wilderness to hear and respond. This is a challenge to us already, straight off the bat, that no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, that you can make an impact for God. I mean, what message are you sending out with the way you're living your life? Is it clear and radical enough that others need to hear it and want to follow? Now, just to ensure we're talking about the same thing, we're talking about baptism. Baptism here is referred to being plunged or dunked. or Well, the guy was immersing people in the Jordan River. So the symbolism here is that we actually go under the water, symbolizing the cleansing away of sin, yes, but also passing safely under the waters of judgment and death. Baptism itself actually pictures a person being buried with Christ. That's why we're submerged under the water. And as you come up, you're being raised to a new life, i.e. you're emerging from the water. Overall, again, the symbolism here is that we're joining together with Christ through the action of the Holy Spirit. That's why we have the power to live this newness of life that it speaks of. I found it actually echoes something in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, where it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. But let me, let's move on. Let's have a look at the person who's been saying this. Let's look at who is John the Baptist. We've been talking about him a little bit, but it says in verse 24 that John had not yet been put in prison. We know that later on, John is put in prison and he's later beheaded by Herod the Tetrarch. Matthew 14 verse 3 tells us why. It's because of his convictions. He'd been changed. He spoke out against Herod for being with his brother Philip's wife. We know that John knew his purpose. He knew who he was and he knew what he was here to do. Mark 1 verse 1 to 9 tells us a little bit more about the man. Let's take a look at those verses. So Mark 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel's hair 
with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And, and, was, and, and this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, John goes beyond being this weird, eccentric guy that lives in the desert and is undertaking his own personal bush tucker trial. But what we learn from him is that he actually has the promises in Isaiah. He knows them and he's choosing to hold on to these promises. They're important. He knows that he is called to assist Jesus to make straight paths for him. Now, he spends his life pointing to Jesus. He says that Jesus is the Lord and Messiah. He points to him as being part of the Godhead. What we also learn is that he lives a life of humility, of low maintenance. I mean, look at his clothes. He's wearing camel hair. His appearance actually is consistent with what you would find in a nomadic desert dweller. These are like the poor people in the desert. Same with his eating habits. They would eat large grasshoppers. Again, it's the poorer side of the community that would eat that. Even to this very day in the Middle East, the poorer side of the community would eat this food. Now, he preaches a message worth hearing. It's countercultural. It's the gospel. Repent and be baptized. Now, the repentance I'm talking about is actually turning away from sin, but you're also turning to God for the forgiveness of sins. I hope you notice this. Repentance comes before baptism. Baptism isn't the means by which sins are forgiven, but it's merely a sign indicating that we have truly repented. It's actually where symbolism meets reality. I mean, the mandate hasn't changed. John preached the message of repent and be baptized. He had disciples. We are called to go forth making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son. And here's the kicker. We have the Holy Spirit. Now, if you're like me, I hear a message like this and I just think, okay, great. Now, what do I do with this? How do I process this? What do I do next? Now, if you're like me, I do like Marvel movies. You can jump in at Marvel movies. You find out one story, but ultimately they're, they're telling a narrative. It's a phase one, then a phase two, then a phase three. That might be you today. You might think, okay, I, I want to move on to phase one. What do I do? You might think, I want to, re I want to repent. I want to acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for my sins. And right now you can pray that in your heart. Now, if you have repented, you've said, I've done wrong. And I'm ready to face it and bring it before Jesus for, for him to forgive me. Now, beyond that, John tells you what you need to do next. The next part of his message is, yes, repent, but then be baptized with water. Now, if you've not been baptized with water, then this would be your next outward display of your response to Jesus. And if you have been baptized, now for me, this is where the fun starts because out of the relationship you have with Jesus, it calls us to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the danger of me describing this as a logical, progressive, one step, two step, three step, is that we tend to treat this as a process like input, and then you get an output. And we always, as human beings, we like to focus on the output. The reality is, you're not output. The best way I can describe this is that we're like a fountain. We're like static water in the fountain. We, bo we bubble up to overflowing when we encounter Jesus. 
And then others see this and they too see the movement of God in your life and they too bubble up to overflowing. Now, this is what we want as a church. We want to see it. We want to hear it. We want to experience it. It's not a you or I moment. It's a we church moment. I don't know about you, but especially during lockdown, I did notice some of those baptisms that took place. I took a special delight in hearing some of those stories. They happened in different locations. Like <laughs> some of them were in streams and some of them were in people's jacuzzis. If you're going to choose a life group, you need to choose one with a jacuzzi in their house. So there's a benefit there. But it actually embodies one of the verses in Acts 8, verse 36, which says, look, here there's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? That was the response of the Ethiopian responding to Philip, who's one of the disciples' explanation of the gospel. Now, just like the New Testament, as a church here, we don't treat baptism as this tag-on to salvation. It's actually a moment to stop and pause. A moment to declare publicly that I have died to my old self and I've been raised to a new life with Jesus. Now, just to be practical, we do, what does matter here is the presence of both faith and water. Now, let me take you on my own personal journey with baptism. So I was raised in the Catholic Church, so my parents probably had me baptized as a baby. Um, so there was probably the presence of water, but no presence of faith, mainly because I couldn't spell faith or even say the word. But the next phase is that my parents wanted me to go to a Catholic school. So I went through some of the seven sacraments. I was confirmed. I say at that point there was probably faith, but there was no water. So when I joined this church, I challenged. I was challenged. I was like, well, I don't feel like I've actually been baptized. I haven't made that step myself. And just like Jesus, I wanted to obey. And therefore, I asked to be baptized. Now, I was baptized in this very, I'm actually standing on top of the pit of which I was baptized in. At the time, it was countercultural for me to say, to go against some of the wishes of my parents, but I'm glad I did. Because symbolically, if we were to play one of those icebreaker games where you have to describe yourself, I would probably say I was a cheater. Not because I was incredibly fast, but what I was very good at is when there was trouble, I would bolt 100 degrees, 100, 360 degrees in the opposite direction and, and you would never see me again or I'd go hide. But after I was baptized, I got some promises from God. I was promised that I would be a warrior for Christ, that I would stand strong in the faith. Now, to this very day, symbolically, I express that back to God. Every time I pick up my Bible or every time I worship, I'm saying to God, yes. I stand up, I'm standing firm. Now, we know this all looks different in different people's lives, but as a church, as, a, as venues, we want more of the Holy Spirit. This is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When you hear the good news, we tend to split it into two. We tend to split it into part one, which is you're the forgiveness of sins, and then the outward display of that through the baptism with water. But don't forget, there is a part two. That is being baptized with the Holy Spirit. Matthew 3 verse 11 tells us that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, don't worry. I'm not asking you to go get some matches right now or a lighter to set yourselves on fire. It's more symbolically, yes, I am asking you to set yourself on fire, just not literally. But some people actually describe being with the Holy Spirit as an experience. 
It's something that happens after you give your life to Jesus. And it is something that happens at any point thereafter. There is no time limit to this. But when it does happen, you definitely know. Now, it is actually so impressive, we find later on in the Bible, that there is a sorcerer that sees other people being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's so impressive that he wants to buy it for himself. Now, when someone tells you you're going to be changed from the inside out, that's exactly what we're talking about, the Holy Spirit. It is a character-changing moment being filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, it produces fruit. Galatians 5 verse 22 to 23 tells us that we will be filled, we would, the fruits of the Spirit are joy, love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are these qualities not what you want today? Because I know I do. And I need it. Now, being filled full of the Holy Spirit isn't a one and done kind of event. We're called to walk in step with the Holy Spirit. And in order to walk in step, you kind of need to know where he's going. And to know where he's going, you need to be in regular communication with him. Now, a life lived this way results in one thing. And that's God's power on display for all to see. Now, in the church, what, how we see that is in the form of spiritual gifts. Now, spiritual gifts come in the form of prophecy. So the gift of prophecy is when you get godly insight into a situation. You usually find people say, I've seen a picture, or they get a word of knowledge, or they have a dream. There are people with the gift of miracles, where they you know, get the direct healing of the sick. But you also have special faith for breakthrough in difficult situations. Or they get discernment over spiritual influences around them. There's also the gift of speaking in tongues, which is an unlearned language, which is enabling you to communicate more effectively with God. And when it's shared publicly, then someone might have the gift of interpretation. So they're able to interpret what has just been shared. But ultimately, these are all blessings to the church, but also to unbelievers. It's how we bring a bit of heaven into our world today. Now, I'm going to walk you through my journey with the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, but by no means am I an expert. I am just like you. I am walking in step and walking along this journey. So I'd say after attending the Alpha course the day apart, I'd asked to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I actually I got to feel some of those, those qualities that I was mentioning earlier. But afterwards, when I started to hear about the gifts, I noticed I started to gravitate towards some people who were actually already exercising this gift. So I've noticed that actually as well, in terms of all those gifts, you don't get one. You can have as many as you'd like. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14, eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. This is, has to be something that you want. But I've actually generally found it's a bit like muscles. If you have biceps, triceps, you've got muscles either side. These are all muscles that we can choose to exercise. It just depends on how strong you want to be in those areas. Now, there will be a chance to pray for the Holy Spirit at the end of this message. So please do take the advantage of that opportunity. Now, I want to move us on. What does John say about Jesus? John refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. He's been preaching his message at the time that the kingdom of heaven is near. Now Jesus is here. The kingdom of heaven is here. This is a cause for rejoicing and celebration. The arrival of Jesus is similar to what you'd find at a marriage ceremony. I love the rich symbolism here between the marriage of the groom and the bride. Jesus is marrying his bride, the church. Now, when you give your life to Jesus, 
guess what? The wedding procession, the feast of it, you're invited to that. You get to experience that for yourself. Now, what's our role here? John's role, John the Baptist's role is quite clear. He says the, his role is to be the bridegroom's friend who selflessly rejoices with the groom. Now, the use of the word selfless, I use that deliberately here because it implies there is a cost to following Jesus. Now, John goes even one step further and expands upon this. He shows us how selfless one must be. And that's in verse 30. I mean, I find verses like this, I love them, but I find them incredibly challenging because of their implication. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. In what area of your life is this a reality? And which area of your life is this clearly not? Be honest with yourself. Everything we've learned about John the Baptist thus far in his ministry all points to these verses. And if I was to put it in my own words, it would be, it's not about me. It's about him. Now, <clears throat> let's move us on. What does Jesus actually say about John? Jesus' characterization of John the Baptist is of him being a burning and shining lamp. It echoes something in Psalm 132 verse 17, which says God has prepared a lamp for his anointed. John the Baptist is the lamp. He's not the light. He's definitely the lamp. But his witness is small, even though it's important and it's temporary in nature. We're called to be like that, just the same. We are temporary in nature. We may feel smaller times, but what we have to offer is important because of who we're pointing to. Now, John the Baptist, John points to Jesus, and so should we. But why? John actually hints at why in verse 32, when he tells us that Jesus is eternal, mainly because of his existence in heaven and his infinite knowledge of God, God's nature and God's counsel. Knowing the Jesus of the Bible is actually revolutionary. Understanding that he is fully God and fully man and that's why that when you point to him, you're pointing to someone that knows the end from the beginning, but you're also pointing to someone that's lived the human experience. He was tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry, just like you and I. And when you give your life to Jesus, or you believe his testimony, or, you, or you're, you're actually believing his truth, you're actually saying that you're participating. You want to be part of this. And that's, that means once you actually believe him, you are sealed in Jesus. Now, usually when you think of seals, you think of an envelope with some red hot wax. And that usually is, that usually do that to authenticate the document. When you believe Jesus, you are being authenticated. And the authenticity of this is evidence of the spirit in your life. Now, I think people at the time could tell that things were a little bit different with Jesus. Imagine we were there, just Picture yourself in, in, your, in, in their shoes. So you're, you're on the Jordan. You're with John the Baptist. He's baptizing. Gets person A. He dunks him in the water. Hopefully brings him back up. He brings him back up. And, we're, and just like when we see baptisms anywhere, we're like, wow, look at the amazing work that God is doing in this person's life. And then Jesus comes along. He gets baptized, but it's slightly different. The Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit descends on him in almost like a divine anointing. And it stays there. We know that the Old Testament, that the Spirit came on people for a specific task, a God-given task. 
I mean, if you think of Samson, I always love Samson, mainly because, yeah, he loves fighting. Um, Samson beats up the Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. That's not normal, just so you're aware. But Isaiah predicted that the Messiah would be full of the Holy Spirit all the time. It says in Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the, for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus is God himself. He is the second person of the Trinity in eternal relational sonship with the Father. This is the real Jesus. Can you see him? God the Father has given all things into his hands, showing great authority for the Father in the council of the Trinity, but also delegated all authority over all creation. At the same time, he is part of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one unifying single divine being. The blessing here is that we're called to partake in this. We're called to partake in the divine nature. We get to engage with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because by accepting Jesus as a gift, we get to receive him into our hearts and into our lives. The result is, yes, you get eternal life, but not as this kind of future occurrence that's going to happen. What happens is right now, you get to go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. This is where we can actually talk to God as our father. And we're helped by the son. But this decision, this decision remains in our hands till it is not. This offer is limited because if we choose to go our own way, then the wrath of God remains on those who choose to remain under God's judgment. And as I close, what areas of your life do you need to become less to allow Jesus to become more? Because he has to be more than this figure you hear about every so often, probably on a Sunday, he has to be more than this name you brandish when you're in trouble. He has to become greater and you must become less in order for us to embrace all that he has for us. This offer, this free gift is only for a season. We must face our mortality, all the things that we've done in our lives. I've always seen it in terms of if we're not hidden in Jesus, then where are you going? If not, then you must face the things that you've done in your life. And that is the righteous wrath of God. That's all our mistakes, all our sins. So let's not sit on the fence on this one. Let's give our lives to Jesus so he can give us life to the full. Let me pray. Lord, I just want to thank you for this message. I thank you, you always bring us to the precipice where we must make a decision to either go your way or go our own. You always remind us the stakes are high and that's why you died on the cross. That we not only can engage with you in the time to come, but right now. We go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, where you fill us full of the Holy Spirit and the activities and the life that you have in store for us is amazing and exciting, but we must first respond to you. In your mighty name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.